Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the U.S. US. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Eye on Veterans. Eye on Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This week, we'll meet Army veteran and host of the Break It Down show, Pete Turner. And we'll get a glimpse into the gripping podcast series, The Prison Chronicles. Somebody's murdered in the United States every 30 seconds. Convictions for first-degree murder commonly carry a prison sentence of 15 to life. And ultimately, most inmates are eventually released, which begs the question, what condition do we want inmates to be in as they complete their incarceration? If I told you that most inmates walk out with less than $1,000, would you feel positive about their chances of becoming a contributing member to society? What if I told you that number is a lot closer to $200 and less? Now what are your thoughts? And we'll flash back to a previous hurricane season where we'll hear firsthand accounts of what it's like to ride out a Category 4 hurricane. Based on the increased intensity and the forecast track, a hurricane warning has been issued for the Texas coast. Sustained winds that we had, say more like 120 at one point for a good solid hour. Big 60-foot eucalyptus tree fall over, that definitely heard that come down. It's a whole lot worse. Whole houses have just been ripped from the foundation. Uh, cars flipped over. That's really scary for kids. You weren't the only one that rode this thing out. Next door to the left of me was stayed with him and his wife. What's the reasoning behind that? That's all coming at you next. Now we'll start this hour off with something like a lifeline. Not only has our economy been hurt by COVID-19, but our friends on the Gulf Coast are reeling from damage that's been caused by Hurricane Laura, which slammed areas spanning from Texas to the mouth of the Mississippi in Louisiana. 
And earlier this week, I had a chance to talk with a fellow Navy veteran about how USAA has helped those that stand ready to offer aid. And for many of our neighbors and fellow veterans, it's the lifeline they need right now. Admiral James Searing served as director of the United States Missile Defense Agency and as a salty sailor like myself, spent many months at sea on U.S. Mighty Navy destroyers, which I got to give him credit for because a, a small boat like a destroyer, you know, that takes some sea legs. But he's here today as the president of Casualty and Property for USAA to talk about how USAA is again coming to the aid of military and veteran families with a $30 million investment in financial assistance. And Admiral, just want to say welcome back to CBSI on Veterans. Phil, it's great to be back and great to talk to you again, my friend. Right on. And I, I just want to refresh your memory. Remember the last time we sat down, I believe it was with you and Eric there at, U, at uh, USAA, and we were at the Army-Navy football game. Yes, sir. I remember it quite well. And this is where I knew that I was talking to the right kind of officer, the right kind of veteran, and a guy that understands me and my family, because uh, you told me a story about your love of Army-Navy football, the story of a young midshipman, maybe a few beverages in the parking lot, and how you missed the bus having to sleep on a park bench. It uh, was not one of my finer, finer moments in my naval career, Phil, but uh, <laughs> yes, that's how, I, that's how I started, and who would have thought that uh, 32 years later I would, uh, Ed would have made it to, to be honored to be the head of the Missile Defense Agency. Not always how you start, it's how you finish. <laughs> it's how you finish indeed, and uh, I just wanted you to know that was my editor's favorite story from the entire show that we did for two days at the Army-Navy football game. And uh, I only hope they play it again this year. Does USAA have any word on that yet, or is it still too early to confirm? No, we, have not, we don't know yet, Phil, and uh, I can tell you that uh, as soon as we know something, we'll be sure to everybody will know, but no, we don't have a definitive answer yet. Well, I always love how you guys help us enjoy that game every year by presenting it. And we're talking about how you're helping us right now. And this Military Family Relief Initiative uh, that I just heard about is huge. Uh, probably one of the largest philanthropic donations you guys have ever made. But $30 million to help military and veteran families. Tell me about it. We're very proud to announce that uh, we're, we are donating $30 million to military-focused nonprofits to provide financial relief. That is benefiting our, our currently serving military families who are suffering, Phil, as you know, just severe financial impact like everybody impacted by COVID. But just because of our mission and who we stand for and what we've done in the past, we felt very strongly that we needed to provide this uh, benefit and relief to those who currently serve and their families. So true. I mean, even my own family right now is kind of dealing and reeling with some of the uh, negative side effects, some of the economic pains you feel from an economy that gets shut down. You know, my wife was in the hotel industry and you talk about, a you know, somewhere that really got affected. Uh, I'm so glad to see you guys stepping up and doing this. Uh, talk to me as I've just shared about my family. Uh, what kind of needs you're seeing military families are having right now? But what we see our members going through is is very I think, um, representative of what, uh, what America is going through. And we're seeing our uh, military spouses being uh, impacted in terms, of, in terms of 30% unemployment of our military spouses. Uh, we currently have 200,000 service members deployed. 20,000 guardsmen are currently deployed in support of the city and state governments. And when, when, you're, when your loved one, your spouse, is sent to deploy, the family is left, in some cases, um, 
you know, not, with, with not a lot of uh, options or, or tools to, to help them through these times, especially if the spouse is unemployed. It may be a two-income family, but when the, when the husband or wife doesn't have a, a job, that's where we uh, need to step in and, and try to help. And that's what we're doing with this donation is really leaning into the major service relief agencies, the five major relief agencies, and the Red Cross. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about where some of this money is going to go. It's not just going to flow directly to people per se, but it'll go through a lot of different organizations. Um, I see here on the list, it looks like each branch is going to be affected by uh, their relief agency. Uh, There's, of course, the Army Relief Agency, the Navy Marine Corps Relief Society. um, The Coast Guard has one. How do those organizations reach and touch the families that they're helping? There's a couple different ways. One, you could reach... You can reach, uh, you can apply directly to the military aid societies, uh, and that's, that's the main method that we, uh, we encourage service members to, to take advantage of. Or you can go to usaa.com slash coronavirus, and, and that site will direct you to the, to the, right, uh, to the right agency. But we're really focusing on, on the five major relief agencies in Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and uh, Air Force, and then uh, the Guardsmen Relief Society as well. I also see on this list some a few organizations that look like they might be helping in other ways. Uh, I see Hiring Our Heroes and Bunker Labs, uh, as well as the Institute for Veterans and Military Families up there in Syracuse. Share with me a little bit about what they might be able to do for the family affected by COVID right now. Each of those smaller agencies that will Will be will be funded through the relief agencies. Bunker Labs is for small business, if I remember that. If I remember that correct, another good example is hiring our heroes, Phil. And I know you know about that that organization, and that's exactly to your point. And if we're learning anything about this era, it's that recovery is going to mean adaptation, and sometimes adaptation is going to mean you find a completely new and different career path or found your own business. And certainly, military military veterans and spouses have all had incredible success doing it. And uh, in case we missed it, uh, again, if I am a military family and I am in need right now, uh, where can I go and what can I do? We encourage all the service members to go to their military aid society, or if they wish to gather further information and be pointed to that, that, um, to that path, they can, they can get more information from usa.com slash coronavirus. And you can also give and aid those military families through that same USAA.com site. And you can actually share your story there as well. And it's the story of the Military Family Relief Initiative that is huge today, $30 million. And we thank USAA for everything you're doing to support military and veteran families out there. You've had the military members back for almost 100 years. USAA. Admiral Jim Searing, always good to talk to you, Jim. Appreciate everything you guys are doing. Yes, sir. It's an honor to speak to you, and I hope to talk to you soon. And now you got to keep me posted because I want the first word on if they're playing football again this winter. I want to I want to sit in the box with you and watch that game. You'll be the first one that we call. <laughs> Outstanding. And we'll be back with more incredible stories when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm your host, former Navy journalist Phil Briggs. Now, let me ask you this. Can you imagine interviewing convicted murderers and then asking them to share details about their own life and the decisions that led to their subsequent crimes? Well, our next guest has done just that. 
and assembled an incredible podcast called The Prison Chronicles. But interviewing these men was arguably one of the least dangerous things he's done in his career. So here to talk about this incredible documentary podcast is Army combat veteran, former counterintelligence analyst, and host of The Prison Chronicles, Pete Turner. Pete, how are you? Hey, man, I'm great. Fantastic intro. I'm, I'm excited to find out who this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Like, we all sound great in the first sentence, and then it's going to be disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is not disappointing in the least. I got to say, uh, from what I've heard of these pods, just absolutely great stuff. Yeah. And uh, let me bring everybody up to speed first, Pete. Uh, when you and I met, uh, I had actually just started at ConnectingVets.com, and I was covering veterans news. I got your name, heard about the Break It Down show, and I listened to the weekly podcast. Uh, that you do. And you gave me a lot of tips on how to get noticed in the podcasting space and how to do it and whatnot. And I really appreciated it. And I remember a couple years later, um, when I was doing a podcast of my own out there in Southern California called To War and Back, um, you told me back in 2019, you were working on this prison thing. And you said, you've mm -hmm. got these lights out interviews set up and you were going to talk about some heavy stuff with guys that are arguably some pretty scary convicted felons on paper. Previously on the Prison Chronicles. I had already pretty much put myself on autopilot. It was just like, I wasn't going to take a loss. I wasn't going to accept that. You know, I always carried a weapon at that point in my life. I was carrying a weapon around, you know, loaded. And they left the scene and I continued looking for them after the fight. And they returned to the scene. I shot two of them. One died at the scene. Another was um, struck, but not fatally. I was out of control with my anger. And the dangerous part was I didn't give myself any other option. You know, there was nothing like now. I know there's so many different directions I could go. At that point, backing down wasn't one of them. But you were going to get past the paper and you were going to dig deep and you were going to find some serious connections. And what I first wanted to bring up to everybody listening is how unique of a storyteller you are, because more than anybody I can imagine, you're qualified to take on something like the Prison Chronicles, uh, Army vet, combat, Bosnia, and then, you know, what, 70 months in combat zones and over a thousand missions as one of those spooky counterintelligence guys between Iraq and Afghanistan. Tell me a little bit about your life in the Army. Yeah, well, I mean, that's exactly it. I had the uh, fortunate misfortune of deploying a lot. And because I'd gotten out and I came back as a federal civilian and sometimes a contract person, I, um, I got to stay in the field. I got to go out every day and talk to locals to understand, like, what was keeping us from winning, you know, and how were they winning over us and, and bringing those lessons back to my commander. And so I just developed a really powerful ability to, to do interviews, to find out the answers to questions that aren't easy to, to find out. So if my job was because I had access to the battlefield, because I would go out and talk to the locals. You know, I'm on the same patrol as everybody else, but my unique access and capability allowed me to find out these, these unknown unknowns that commanders needed so that they could adjust how their unit performed. And it's the same skills as, as, a, as a reporter, really. You know, I mean, again, like someone who's got access to the sidelines of an NFL game, don't tell us the stuff that we all know. Like, give us something that we can't get anywhere else. And that's, that's what I did. And because I stayed in the field so long, you know, I, I mastered it. I mastered the ability to get complex stories boiled down into, you know, a small report and, and get people to open up to me in a way that they wouldn't do with other people. 
you know, what really made me stand out as, as a collector was I would get interviews with people that the military and State Department, they, they had no idea they even existed. And yet they were extremely powerful in the region. And I'm, I'm able to do that because of my ability to network and, and to ask questions in a way that makes a lot of sense. And I use those same skills in the prison chronicles. And that's just what I kind of wanted to highlight, because it's crazy to think like you're talking to these gentlemen here in America where everything is safe. And for that matter, they're enlightened guys. They're going to give you a story that you can't get really anywhere else. But you, while you were in or whether you were a government contractor doing the counter intel stuff, um, man, you had to sit and go into like, I can only imagine like Quonset huts or like with tribal elders mm-hmm. surrounded by people that could have just as easily said, okay, meeting's over, pop, 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 and gotten rid of you. Yeah, every day. Every, I mean, my, that's my job is to meet the most evil people in that area because they're the ones that intend to do the most harm and, and make them my friends and earn their trust. I mean, that's literally the essence of my job is to find those people. That's why I'm always glad to be your friend, buddy. <laughs> always glad to have <laughs> you on my side. Now, let's talk about how you're putting those skills to use with this podcast series called The Prison Chronicles. So uh, the show notes says that the podcast shows some parallels to combat zones, abandonment, and PTSD. But yet you're talking to guys about their time incarcerated for some pretty heavy crimes here in the States. Share with me the 30,000 foot view about what we're going to hear when we listen to the Prison Chronicles. Yeah, I mean, we grabbed a number of significant, you know, former inmates with, with like murder charges, some of them. You know, a lot of them had life sentences. One of them was a Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, broker right now these are guys who either are notable because they were newsworthy at the time or be because of how you know heinous the crime is the whole thing though and phil this is this is vital this whole examination of of the prison experience before during and after is is founded on uh, a young girl who got murdered in my hometown on our high school campus by her boyfriend because you can't lose sight of the victim and the victim is you know, the girl that gets murdered, all her friends. And what I learned from my classmates, this happened my senior year in high school, the closer you were in time in terms of that cohort and then physicality, like were you on the other side of the campus like I was, or were you right there, there's a lot more damage. And, it, and then it quickly bleeds away. If you're, if you're two years older or two years younger, it's just a story that you know about and you don't have the, the damage. But that damage remains to this day with my friends that witnessed it, knew her, you know, because these were people in our community. And, and so the whole thing has to start there, because if you're going to talk about prison reform, we can't lose sight of the fact that there are horrible things that are putting these people in prison in the first place. Yeah. Sort of picking up from there and realizing there's some pieces that need to be put together for us to have a full understanding. You dive into their psyche. You dive into them. You dive into their lives. You, you, you really pull things out of these interviews that I know you don't get in just regular news interviews. Tell me about what we'll learn when we hear their stories. Yeah, so and you, you talked about it earlier with the first part of the question, is, is there's direct links to my experience in combat zones. You know, my first-person experiences, and then these guys are relating it to me. Like, they're describing getting off the X. They're describing being nervous being in a car because there's not an, an exit out either way. Um, one, of, one of my subjects, he, his name is Shaka Sungor, he's an author He's an incredible guy. He talks about how basically most of the men and, and, you know, several women in his family have been shot and says, you know, and these are things that should open your eyes to understanding the condition. Like it's easy to say that person committed murder, throw them away and, and they never get out. But the reality is, is murderers and everybody below that 
they get out for the most part. And so he said most people in his family had been shot, and that prison was an extension of his community. And I know as an American, that's not what I want. I, I don't want people to feel like, you know, yeah, everybody's either going to die or go to prison. Several of these guys said that. Everybody knew that. We were either going to be dead or we're going to prison and maybe both. That's not an outcome that makes sense to me as a person who's kind and cares about people. Wow. So going to prison, an extension of his family or his community, most literally, like he got to prison and knew people, like had friends there already. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, so-and-so's in prison. Yeah, that's just where they were. And it was a normal outcome. So one of the things that I discovered also is from talking to military-age males in, in conflict zones, right, one of the problems is, is they don't have hope. It's been ripped out of them, you know, and this is uh, the same thing with these guys, especially the gang guys, because you know, it's not all gang members. There's a variety of different paths to prison within the prison province. But for the gang guys especially, this combat theme and this dehumanization of who they are through the gang, you have to have the gang to protect yourself. If you don't have that, then okay, so you become subordinate in terms of survival to the gang because there's required retribution and, and vengeance that has to happen. It's the same things that, that you know happened in combat zones. Now coming up, we'll examine how Army veteran Pete Turner's podcast series, The Prison Chronicles, reveals an eerie similarity to his close friend's life during and after combat. That's ahead when CBS Eye on Veterans continues. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, we've been talking with Army veteran and host of the Break It Down Show podcast, my friend Pete Turner. With over 1,000 missions outside the wire, he's been face-to-face with terrorists. More recently, he's been face-to-face with gang members and others sentenced to prison for serious crimes, which he documents in the special podcast series, The Prison Chronicles. Here's just a clip. How does a convicted murderer grow up? What happens when a person's childhood culture is one where there are only two options, death or prison. So I know for sure that there was a darkness. I call it my dark companion. I didn't become aware fully that I had my dark companion, meaning a force that was with me through those experiences, a magnetic spiritual force that was present. I didn't know that existed until it was gone. When the, when the weight of its removal happened, I was conscious that that thing had been with me, that darkness had been with me for a while. Now we'll return to the part of the interview where Pete's talking about how some of the men that were close to him, like his interpreter during combat, had very similar life experiences. Like with Johnny Walker was my interpreter. You know, he's got that best-selling book, uh, codenamed Johnny Walker. He walked up to me one day, it's in the book, and he says, hey, someone killed my cousin, I have to go kill that guy. I need a gun, you know? <laughs> so wow. it's the same thing. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. And, and I wanted to bring up one more point, with just to really drive this home. So Honoré Vachon, one of our subjects, is a rapper named X-Rated, and he went to jail for murder. He was talking about the first time a gun was pulled on him. And he was, it was the day after his 13th birthday. And this is a, a middle school-age kid, right? And he's on his cousin's handlebars of his bike as his cousin rides them down to Tower, the Tower store where I worked at. We didn't know each other at the time, but, you know, we, same neighborhood. And 
he says, this guy, I look at a guy driving the other way on this road. This is a wide four-lane boulevard with the center divide. And he's looking at a guy, and his cousin says, don't look at that guy. Well, it's too late. He already looked at him. And so this dude stops his Jeep, drives over the median, and comes over and pulls a gun on him. And again, these are 13-year-old kids. Wow. But because they had looked at him, he pulled a gun on him. And so I'm like, I've heard this story before. And I remembered Johnny Walker's wife, you know, who she had to move place to place to place all the time because Johnny's career put them in jeopardy. And so she was on the road to Baghdad trying to, once again, move away from danger because it was dangerous. And I asked her in her interview, I said, how many times a month was, was the well-being of your family completely out of your control? And she said, better questions, how many times a day? And when I put these two stories together in the Prison Chronicles, it really, it should shock you to the core how similar these experiences are. You know, Beta Walker ends up holding her kids in her arms, hoping that they all get murdered at the same time. And then the army rolls by, just out of luck. And the whole thing goes away because her gang showed up and it saved her life. And it's the same thing for Honoré. If he doesn't have that gang affiliation, He's at the mercy of anybody who he happens to look at driving down the road. Man, Pete, I've never heard it put like that. Incredible stuff. More incredible stuff is kind of how we can all overlay this over our own lives and take a look at it. And of course, we're in this tumultuous, crazy year. You know, we've got uh, racial injustice protests just going on and on now. And, 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 and it's almost like we haven't heard of any legislation that's directly related to this uh, on a federal level. Um, and it just seems like people are getting more and more and more angry. What can we learn from the prison chronicles or how did this shape how you feel about our national conversation about racial injustice? Yeah, it's, it's a big, hard question, you know, but when we look at the outcomes that we get through prison. And, and, and here's a couple ways to look at it. And Honor Ray said this best. There's an inherent flaw in the system. You know, you don't see, hey, uh, we can't find enough prisoners to put into prison, so we're going to shut this prison down. Or, hey, you see this, this courthouse? We don't need it anymore because we just, you know, <laughs> this is no crime. Right, it only right. expands. You only get more courtrooms, more lawyers, more cops, you know, more union things. And and it's a system. It's a multi-part system as well. So the courts, the people, the DA, all these different things work to create this machine that ultimately craves young black men. It chews them up, it spits them out, and runs them right back through. And we as society look down on them for failing at life. Mm. And I tell you, you know, it's and I'm not like a social justice warrior kind of person, but I can see the outcomes. And these guys are reflecting back at me. You know, the, the, one of the things that Honoré talks about, so the, the episodes five through eight are coming out in about two weeks, the conclusion. And one of the things that Honoré talks about is he's a free man. He's been released. He's met his parole requirements. All they've got to do is let him out the door, and he'll meet his family down in San Diego where he's being held. But just to stick it to him one last time, the guard said, nope, we're going to release you in Oakland. And so as basically a free man, they chain him, put him in a truck, you know, like to transform or a bus or whatever it is. And while his family is waiting for him without letting them know, they send him up to Oakland, you know, or miles away to release him up there. Man. Um, I'll tease one more thing about the prison chronicles. And that is in episode two, um, where one of your subjects talks about his dark companion. And you mm. asked about how is it like, did you know you were on the road to bad stuff? Did you know 
that you were going nowhere fast and that life was going to get bad. And he talked about having almost being in the grips as if you were kind of possessed. I call him my dark companion. I didn't become aware fully that I had my dark companion, meaning a force that was with me through those experiences of magnetic spiritual force that was present so that we're willing to be killing machines. Well, the dark companion is something that you're not aware that it's there, but it, it leeches your care for yourself and for other lives away from you. You know, and it's part of this gang mentality. It's part of the environment that you're in. You put the gangs with, with the cultural aspects of, you know, being in the gang and being from the hood. I represent this area. This is how we do this here. And so all of that just pulls away and not humanity so that your livelihood, your longevity, your forward thinking, it's not possible because right now there's conflict today. Going to the mall might, you know, requires a, a pre-combat check. You know, like if we go to the mall and we see so-and-so, we are required to respond. Right. However, if we see this so-and-so, we, we need to get away from it. Like these are pre-combat checks. This, this is planning for combat when you go to the, the, to the mall. And, and that's not a normal condition for, for young kids to be in. You know, you maybe have a beef with somebody, but this is different than that. This is for territory. This is for money. This is for influence. And so the Dark Companion is just the, the gathering all of these things. And until Henri was able to shuck that Dark Companion off, you know, until Kenyatta said, I don't want to spend the rest of my life in jail, and his mom said, well, start acting like it, until those points, they couldn't see the, that Dark Companion that was pushing them towards this, this other path of not mattering. And society gladly obliging them by saying, you don't matter, you know? You made this mistake. We don't need you around anymore. So that's the dark companion. And it's, it's really tough for these guys to see it because they don't know it's there until they do get somewhere like prison and they're able to work through it. And this is, this is the powerful point here with the, whole, with the whole series. I would ask these guys, like, hey, when did you turn the corner? And then when did you figure it out? And these, again, these are murderers. And so they would all say, you know, 10, 11, 12 years. Sometime in that zone, they're like, I, you know what? It's just me. I have to change this. And then they started doing the real work to change. And then almost without exception, they all said, I figured it out right before my parole release happened. You know, it's 25 years, 26 years, however long it was that they were in prison. Like that's how long it took them to really figure it out, to be comfortable with their accountability, to be comfortable with their shame and accept, you know, their, their role in this consequence, whether it was circumstance or direct action. But that's how hard it is to, to discover and exercise this dark companion. The Prison Chronicles is a special series of The Break It Down Show, and it's an eye-opening look that will hopefully give us a sense of empathy and enlightenment as we grasp for answers to the problems of PTSD and the painful events surrounding our country's battle with racial injustice. And you can find out more about this special series, The Prison Chronicles, at thebreakitdownshow.com. Now we'll be back with more incredible stories, including a veteran surviving a hurricane, when CBS Ion Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. 
Now, as many people have been devastated along the Gulf Coast by the effects of Hurricane Laura earlier this week, it reminded me of an episode I did of the podcast Vet Story, where I spoke with a former shipmate of mine in the U.S. Navy. Rodney Whedon rode out Hurricane Harvey near Corpus Christi, Texas. And after talking with him, I learned that even in the worst of times, we can still find the best in people, especially our veterans. Based on the increased intensity and the forecast track, a hurricane warning has been issued for the Texas coast. Sustained winds that we had, I'm saying more like 120 at one point for a good solid hour. Big 60-foot eucalyptus tree fall over that definitely heard that come down. It's a whole lot worse. Whole houses have just been ripped from the foundation. Uh, cars flipped over. That's really scary for kids. You weren't the only one that rode this thing out. Next door to the left of me was stayed with him and his wife. What's the reasoning behind that? Imagine if you'd have went to Houston to ride the storm out. Welcome back to another episode of Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs, and today we'll talk about Texas and Hurricane Harvey. Whether you're watching it on the news or on your Facebook feed, you can't get away from the devastation that Harvey's caused South Texas. And your heart breaks for him. The videos we see of two-story homes halfway submerged. What were once streets are now rivers, with boats passing over top of street signs and stop signs. To put it into perspective, I read somewhere that imagine the entire state of Delaware, with more people than Manhattan, was underwater. That's Houston right now. And whether it's Houston or the coastal towns like Corpus Christi and Rockport, Texas, when you see those pictures, you can't help but feel connected to them. And then I saw on my Facebook page, I was actually connected to somebody down there. My buddy from the Navy, Rodney Whedon, has lived in Corpus Christi, Texas since we got out of the service. So when I saw the hurricane had passed, I had to reach out to him. One, to find out if he's okay. And two, to see why he chose to stay put and ride out a storm like Hurricane Harvey, living in the bullseye of Corpus Christi, Texas. Yeah. Rodney, what's going on, man? Good to have you on the line. And uh, before we get started, I just want to say that I shared your Facebook post, uh, the picture of the South Texas good old boys holding their rifles, sitting around a sign that said, Drunks with guns, you loot, we shoot. Well, that's most (laughs) of us down here, dude. No, you get out in the countryside, they ain't going to let you mess with their stuff. Right on, man. Well, while that's the lighter side of what we're talking about, um, run me through what this thing was like to live through. This was the strongest one I've been through. You know, we uh, managed to just escape Felix back in the 90s when we were in the Navy. Right. But I'm not sure on the peak wind gusts um, or the peak sustained winds that we had, uh, but it was, I, I, I'm saying, I know it was better than 110. I'm saying more like 120 at one point for a good solid hour. And, and Gus had to be 130, 135 or so. And it, it's pretty, yeah, when your house is shaking and trees are coming down, it, it's it's a little nerve-wracking. Now, where were you in the house, if I can ask? Because I, I um, think to those of us that live city life, you know, we look at this and we say, okay, they hunkered down. But you guys don't have basements when you're on the Corpus no, Christi Bay. I mean, you're... No, we no basements in South Texas whatsoever. Uh, so we were just in the 
is I would say it on the leeward side of the house in a bedroom. So in other words, on the downwind side of the house, so that if anything happened, the wall came over or something, I'd be on the up the windward side, so we wouldn't have to deal with that. And then we could always go out the window and get out or whatever need be. But um, yeah, we were just staying in. It was a brick house, so we just stayed in that front bedroom with the wind blowing away from us from that that window, so we didn't have to worry about it. As it progressed, and, could you hear like windows breaking, or did you suffer that kind of damage at your house? Or no, no, not the house. Um, you could hear stuff hitting the house, you know, debris and stuff, and you definitely heard branches falling. And you know, I had that big sixty foot eucalyptus tree fall over. That definitely heard that come down. Um, and then other than that, it's just mostly wind you really couldn't hear much other than that unless something actually hit the house or hit the neighbor's house yeah and what's the old phrase it's not that the wind is blowing it's what the wind is blowing that'll do some damage (laughs) oh yeah um, well i mean you know you start getting i'll just say 110 i don't want to over exaggerate let's just say it was 110 that's pretty loud when it's sustained like that for i mean we were good six eight hours like that because uh, that storm moved so slow, it, it just—I mean, it just the whole house was shaking and it was loud and you know no power and you just—I mean, just nothing but rain and wind sideways. Couldn't even go outside and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> God bless. Um, let me ask because I think when we see this on the news, we assume these coastal towns become ghost towns and that everyone just up and leaves. But no, you weren't the only one that rode this thing out. Yeah. Yeah, we're on the north side of Corpus Christi Bay, so if you went right across the bridge to Corpus, they were actually less damaged. Uh, and then if you go 10 miles north of us, it got even worse. So uh, the uh, my neighborhood, I know my neighbor next door to the left of me was stayed with him and his wife, and then he had grandkids and stuff that stayed, and they have a two-story brick house. And then the people across the street and over one stayed, the people on the right side of me stayed. So there was a bunch of people around. You know, and, and well, you know, we all got outside and helped or made sure everybody was okay when trees were coming down, stuff like stuck our heads out the door and, hey, we're good. <laughs> What's the reasoning behind that? Because I know you think like when you're in a coastal town or you see like, you know, bad weather coming, um, the first thoughts are the elderly, you know, you should try to take care of them and get them out of there. Yeah, the people I live with, they're elderly and have uh, uh, the, the old man's got heart problems and you know, the, the wife's just old and she has to take care of him as well. I sent them to Austin because they have a daughter up in Austin. I said, you guys need to get out of here. We're not going to have power. We're probably going to have no water, or at least water boil at a minimum. You know, you're not going to be able to go to the hospitals or anything like that if anything were to go wrong in the middle of the night. Plus the stress of it all for them. So, they, yeah, it's absolutely necessary to get them out of there. And a lot of people sent wives away with their kids to get the kids out of the situation because that's, that's really scary for kids. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times... Friends of mine, you know, even had their kids and their wives stay. You know, the wife didn't want to leave or something along those lines where it just, yeah, everybody stayed and find a interior room just like they tell you when you're in grade school from way back, you know, you got a hurricane or a tornado or a high wind situation, go to the interior room to stay safe and snatch you up a bunch of blankets, pillows, and some water and just sit there and try to enjoy it as best you can. <laughs> um, what's the rationale for the guys that do stay behind? Why is it that uh, you wanted to be well, there? So you could be one of the first people to help repair or so you could be on the ground and assess damage and help do damage control? You know, the the whole thing is, is there's still work because you got to go to work at some point. You got to stay there, get the house cleaned up, make sure your belongings are okay to 
check on neighbors that stayed. And by the time you leave, go to San Antonio, Austin, or even Houston. Imagine if you'd have went to Houston to ride the storm out. You know, look at the position you're in now. We actually have a guy from work that's up there in Houston that went up there to help his dad out and to get away from the high winds. And now he's stuck in Houston and probably has his dad's house is flooded and everything else. So now he's in a worse situation than what he was to begin with. I don't want to say it's better to stay, especially if you're on the island, you know, over at Padre, North Padre Island, Port Aransas, you know, Rockport right on the water, Flower Bluff, which is on the water. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get an eight, 10 foot uh, storm surge and you're pretty silly to have stayed. But Portland, where I live at, and lots of Corpus, we're actually kind of up on a bluff. And that puts us high enough where we don't have to worry about the uh, storm surge. So it's just the wind and rain mostly that we have to worry about. Generally, most people stay behind just to protect their belongings, and and they have full understanding. Nobody went into it thinking they were going to have electricity. Nobody's complaining. And, you know, they just understand, I'm going to stay here, take care of my stuff, and you know, get my family back whenever I get power restored and things fixed up enough for them to come back and live comfortably. Amen. And you're talking about a very Texan kind of attitude there, which we're going to get to in just a second, because nobody said it mm-hmm. better than you did the other night when I talked to you. Uh, but real yeah. quick, what's the aftermath? What's it look like on the ground there where you are now? Where I'm at now, I'm out in Robstown, which is the west side of Corpus Christi. That's where my job's at. And I've, there's trees down here around, but you know, they're they're just small, brushy mesquite trees. They're not big trees. But you go up, like I said, where I'm at in Portland, there's trees everywhere. I mean, you know, and I mean, everybody's out cutting trees, pack, you know, piling branches. There's a few roofs that came off. A couple of the metal buildings got destroyed. Uh, but if you head on up into Ingleside and Ramses Pass, Rockport, Port Ramses, it's a whole lot worse. Whole houses have just been ripped from the foundation. Uh, cars flipped over. Uh, flood damage from the storm surge because they did get the ten foot storm surge up there, and they're pretty they're low lying, so that actually goes in quite a ways up there. I'm sure you've heard of Port Aransas, right? Most people have. Indeed, and certainly if you hadn't before from watching the news over the last couple of days, a lot more people are familiar with it. But those are the coastal towns that are literally facing the Gulf, and the only between the only thing between them and the ocean really is that one little strip of island that is South Padre Island, or on the north end, it's. I forget what yeah, it's called and the up people, there. But there's a- you know, the people in coastal North Carolina can tell you the same thing. The only thing that saves them is that, you know, the Outer Banks Islands. Exactly. You know, and if it gets over the Outer Banks Island and continues to rise, well, then they'll tell you, too, that island only does so much. Certainly when you get a haymaker, you know, like Harvey or any of these big hurricanes that are Cat 3 and above, I mean, yeah, they're putting out a yeah. lot of water and they'll just wash right over one of those little islands. But uh, it, oh, it, absolutely. It, it'll slow it down maybe just enough to help make it uh, a little less deadly for those yeah. left behind. Um, what I really yeah. liked when I chatted with you the other night is that you're still alive and kicking and you're doing great things, but you talked to me about a very a very Texas attitude about things. And what I first thought was, you guys are crazy to be riding this out. Just tell me about what you see with respect to that Texas attitude and what everyone's doing down there, kind of a sense of togetherness. You just get outside and start dragging branches and helping your neighbor out, you know, uh, you got food or you got a generator, you, you try to let them put food in your fridge. You know, you, you share food, you share water, you, you do the things that are necessary. So everybody survives as comfortably as possible. It's not a matter of whether you like the person or not. It's just a matter of doing the right thing. I mean, guys just walking around the neighborhood with chainsaws, you said. Yeah. 
Yeah, a guy just walking around, you know, and I'm out there with a, an inverter on a diesel truck running a pole saw trying to cut a tree down, and he just, hey, you need some help, you know, and he's got eight freaking mesquite trees in his front yard that he just got done chopping, but here he comes. He's going to keep right on working. You know, hey, you need help with that? I got, you know, gas pirate chainsaws. Like, well, dude, you don't have to, but I got a beer in the cooler if you want one. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So out of all of this destruction, as people start to surface again, it's really a kind of cathartic situation people dealing with this together and almost speaks to why people do stay behind because they're wanting to help people almost instantly yeah i mean you know to be honest with you phil for eight hours of the storm it was absolutely horrible i mean just you couldn't go outside you couldn't do anything you just had to sit there and deal with whatever you heard crashing around and banging and everything else it sucked but as soon as it's over it's almost kind of fun to get outside and all that. I mean, even though everything's destroyed, stuff flipped over, I mean, everything else. But you get out there with your neighbors and it's just, man, I'm so tired right now, dude. I can't even keep my eyes open. I'm here trying to work on cranes. I can't even stay awake right now. Because it's just for the last four or five days, I've just been on the go helping everybody, everybody coming to help me. Just constant, you know. And as long as everybody's got a beer and everybody's, you know, yeah, you know, dragging little branches. We got kids helping drag branches and everything else. It's just kind of a neat thing to see. It really is. It's kind of refreshing. Now, while I thought my buddy Rodney might have been a little bit crazy to stay behind, the more he spoke, the more it started to make sense. And the story of his neighbor's son was sort of inspiring. Now, like I told you yesterday when we were talking, twenty-five-year-old kid. You know, he's got a house. He's got stuff tore up. He's a young kid making. You know, he's making decent wages for somebody his age but by no means is he a professional but what's he doing today he's dragging his boat up to houston to go rescue people in houston mm. you know i mean that says a lot about a 25 year old kid and there's a lot of people like that we got a lot of people from louisiana that kind of have the same mentality they're coming over from louisiana because so many people from texas went over and helped after katrina you know it's not up to just the police and the government to do this it's up to it's up to us as a neighborhood as a community and that's absolutely the way it should be anytime, anywhere. We're part of what makes, you know, the whole, the whole of America great. But when you see these neighborhoods that just don't behave that way, me, 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 breaking in stores after a hurricane to get a TV. I mean, come on, for real? Right on, man. Leave me with one little picture that you painted for me the other night. What did you tell me people were doing in their driveways after this storm? Yeah, we're... I was driving around and people standing out front, no electricity, trees down, windows broken, stuff like that. You know, they're working and somebody's over there. There's always one person on a grill got mesquite wood burning. They're burning meat and, you know, cooking cans of beans and whatever outside, feeding the, you know, feeding the neighbors, feeding themselves, whatever's necessary. It's, it does really smell good, especially when you get a brisket cooking. You know? <laughs> Not even Hurricane Harvey's going to keep Texans from their barbecue. I love it. No, no, not at all. And maybe that's what we should take away from this disaster. That when life throws at you the very worst, it's best when you come together, just like you do at a barbecue. I'm Phil Briggs, and we'll talk to you again about another vet story on ConnectingVets.com. Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by 
University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 